Hello, my name is Vic Hermanson. Father Birdsong asked me to appear in his show to talk about my life, especially my beliefs, my connection to Christ, and whatever spiritual challenges I still face, as we all do. This was about a two and a half hour interview that I've cut down to an hour and a half. I've not taken out anything substantive, just some of the banter and time-wasting. So, I assume Father Birdsong will put an intro in front of this, but for what it's worth, here's my story. Whether everybody's there or not. I was just a little nervous, I'm sorry. I was thinking about... Actually, you know what I was thinking about when you first started talking? Was my first confession. That's very, very interesting. Very, very first confession. In that I couldn't really figure out what to confess. And so the, the priest said, all right, tell you what, I'll just ask you questions. <laughs> wow. you, you see, there's a big difference between us, because right now I think I could come up with a list about this long. <laughs> and I've never been to confession. Well, I, was only, I was only 14. so. <laughs> oh, oh, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That makes a lot more sense. All right, so do we need to start over, or can you do an intro? I'm going to. I'll embarrass myself and make it e make it easy for you. Hi, everyone. My name is Vic Hermanson. I am, along with Father Birdsong and Dave Griffin and JJ Johnson, uh, part of the Paranormal Rundown. I guess if I wanted to, I could say to the world that the Paranormal Rundown was my original idea. Uh, but it doesn't matter because one person can't do a rundown. You got to have people to do a rundown. And now we've got people. Father Birdsong did a uh, nice little introduction a minute ago. He was talking about everybody has a story. Everybody has high points, low points. Everybody has things that have defined their life. And he was asking me to say what that was. Uh, he quoted a Bible verse, which is not coming into my brain right this second, which Bible verse was that? Proverbs seventeen seventeen, A friend loves at all times, but a brother, but a brother is born for adversity. And that's what I count each of you guys about. Father Birdsong just talked about Proverbs seventeen seventeen. I believe you said that. Yes. Which is a proverb about friends and brothers. You know, I have met some of the best friends in my life since I started dealing with JJ on Southern Demonology. You know, I count JJ as a good friend, Dave and Father Birdsong, and Josh. You know, I count as men that I, I like and respect, people I would like to be around. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like most adults, if you get 10 really good friends in your life, I think you're probably at the far end of the bell curve. You know, there may be people who have all kinds of great friends, but to me, I just think that that number of friends is, you know, that's a blessing if you get that many. All right. It always makes me uncomfortable when people say things to me like, you know, they would really trust me, they would want to be in war with me, things like that. I never feel myself as being that kind of person or feel myself as being worthy of that kind of trust and respect. 
Well, that's a that's a good place though, actually, because it it would allow you to become vulnerable, mm-hmm. and that is a good place when you're with friends and brothers, and that's that's the reason why I brought up that scripture, mm-hmm. um, because you can't ever really know anyone until we become vulnerable to someone mm-hmm. to to open up our hearts per se mm-hmm. and lay everything down on the table and become a hundred percent honest with each other. And that is that is that's the whole purpose of what I wanted to do tonight. Um because you guys are over the past maybe year uh, have become very special people to me mm-hmm. and and so I wanted our listeners to get to know each of you um because I, because I think if we become vulnerable and open and honest to our listeners, we'll gain even more. However, but however, it shows everybody that we're human also. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And so that's, that's one of the greatest things uh, that uh, I love in our shows is because we can start on one topic and then wind up talking about Who ourselves knows? and our yeah. junk that's going on. And I just think it's amazing. But anyway, go ahead. This is you tonight. Okay. I'll just go chronologically, kind of start about where I came into the world, which was a little tiny town in Louisiana called Converse. C-O-N-V-E-R-S-E. Still there. You can look it up. There's not much to it. That's, I say the converse is where I came to the world, even though I wasn't born there, because that's when I start having memories. That's mm-hmm. when I start thinking of myself as a, a person with will in the world. And what I remember about converse was that we, if I look back as an adult, we were very poor. I didn't ever really understand that we were poor. It, it, it never struck me. I don't think kids really care about that sort of thing. And if I look back on it in terms of, you know, who my parents were and what was going on, it would, would have been surprising for us to not be pretty comfortable. My father was a geologist during the largest Louisiana oil boom ever. And that should not have been a situation where we were not financially sound. The problem was my dad was a very severe alcoholic, very serious drinker, a brilliant man, really brilliant man, charming, funny, very knowledgeable, very capable, accomplished. That was the sober man. The drunk man was a totally different kind of man. Mm. He, yeah. he was irresponsible and angry and abusive and very, very frightening. 
And so sort of the, some of the first memories that I have in my life, I mean, of there are some beautiful memories. I mean, that was a beautiful place to live. There were these mm -hmm. massive, never-ending pine forests. It was the weirdest little town ever. We, uh, I lived next to a, an abandoned ammonia ice factory. That was the creepiest place you could ever imagine for a kid to go and explore. And of course, I'd been told that I should not, would not ever go into the ice factory. So the place I really, really wanted to go more than anything else was the ice factory. So I spent a lot of time in the ice factory and I can remember some of the perceptions of a little boy where you don't necessarily think of odd things as being odd. And I don't know for certain, but I, I believe that when I was in that ice house, I mean, I was aware of other people being in that ice house. There were no other people that would ever go in the ice house. But my little boy brain remembers there being other people there. Mm. I'm wondering if these were apparitions, if these were shadows, ghosts, whatever they were. They didn't frighten me. They never, ever, ever frightened me. And I would, I can remember telling my mother when I, when she'd say, well, you were in that ice house. She'd find out. And I would, of course, say, yeah, I had to. I did. But there are people over there. And then, of course, she'd say, no, there aren't any people over there. There was an old, ancient general store in that town, the kind of thing you see in Gunsmoke. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, this old general store falling apart. It had that smell. I don't know if you know which smell I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. But it's, oh, the, it's, the, it's the smell of wood that's been there for 100 yeah. years. It's the smell of, you know, pickles and crackers and, you know, meat. And it had that smell. Love it. Yeah. And there were people there that didn't seem to be buying anything. They didn't seem to be talking to anybody. They just sort of stood over in the corner and watched. Same kind of people as were in the, white, right in, in the ice house. Now, sometime around age eight, if that is what I was seeing, that ability went away. And I've never since then seen anything along those lines, except for one time, much later on. So anyway, part of that place was just a beautiful place to live. There were all kinds of interesting people there. There was a family that lived back in the woods where a, it was a huge family. Uh, I don't know how many generations lived in that house, three, four, but about half of the kids had six functional fingers and six functional toes. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a little six. six. It, it wasn't a little nub or something coming off the edge that didn't, didn't do any good. This was as strong as any other finger. Wow. And, and, and you, you see this, it happens occasionally. It's not unknown, but I'm thinking that was a uh, genetically concentrated family. <laughs> <laughs> That's putting it nicely there, Vic. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know one, would, uh, one would see that in, in Louisiana. Sometime around age... Eight, we moved out of Louisiana. I lived in Shreveport at the time. Mm -hmm. We moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And I remember living in this tiny little house called on Lisa Avenue. You know, I, I guess I would have to think of myself absolutely as a country boy because I lived in the country. 
and suddenly in a pretty big city, going to Mill Creek Elementary School there on Dixie Highway. And that was also one of those times that was extremely good, and there were times that were extremely bad. I loved being in the city. I loved having more kids to play with. I loved the fact that I could go down the street and there were lots and lots of kids that I could play with. I also remember, uh, and this is in one of the Trailer Trash Terrors episodes, I also remember that that was the period of time that my dad had the most severe psychological problems. And I don't want to dwell on it, but it, it was, you know, very, very abusive to my mother, myself my sister, not so much my younger brother. But I uh, remember that as being where I began to realize that my mind was responding to this psychological stress of the angst between my mother and father in ways that might not have been entire, right, right. might not have been entirely healthy. Been there myself. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I would spend most of my mental energy doing things like taking all the sounds, trying to, first off, trying to figure out what are the sounds of the English language. Okay. There's g, b, d, f, a, e, a, you know, mm -hmm. all of these different sounds. And then I, so I'd write them down and try to figure it out. And I'd listen to people talk. And then I, and then I started trying to categorize them from hard to soft, hard sounds to soft sounds. And, and I would, this was like a mantra for me. So when things would get difficult, I would start doing this mantra in my mind, you know, good, duh, buffo, you know, all of these, all of these different sounds. Now I can remember at some point saying to myself, okay, Victor, this is where all of your thinking is going. You've, you've got to have some brain left to do other things in the world. So you need to stop doing this stuff. Right. I also had lots of other OCD things that I would do. I would count syllables. I would, um, and, and I felt very negative about these things. So after a few years. Let, and, me, let me interrupt you for okay. just a second. Uh -huh. You felt very negative about that. Expound upon that for just a moment. Oh, I felt it was evil. Okay. I, I, I felt like I was doing something, something evil in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and you know, you know, kids have magical thinking right kids have uh, the thought that the mundane things they do are going to impact the lives of others mm -hmm. they have the thought in their head that someone else might control their mind mm -hmm. these are the things that i had i i was convinced there for a long time that my father could control my mind yeah yeah and I was convinced that all of this OCD stuff was going to directly impact other people. And the sad thing is, is that you mentioned the, uh, the abuse when mm -hmm. he was the quote unquote other man. And that can, that plays a very definitive place in our lives and in our emotional state. So there's no wonder that you were, I'm going to use the word insecure. Oh, I was very insecure. And, and I, uh, so. I'm certain these were coping activities. Right. I'm going to lay out myself in ways that I don't normally do. That's what we're looking for. It's taken me years to understand some things about myself. Mm -hmm. 
first off, and I, I hate saying this kind of garbage, I am ridiculously brilliant. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> we we will nice all to hear agree you with that. Say it for once. <laughs> <laughs> we'll and, all we'll all agree to that. <laughs> and it it has taken me years to understand that I am capable of thinking in ways that many other people just simply aren't capable of thinking. Right. Doesn't make me better. Doesn't make me worse. Doesn't make me anything other than just. I can think in those zones. I can think in those realms. Well, see, that's what makes you, you. It, it, it can also, it also means that you've got to learn how to deal with the rest of the world in the way that they can think. Okay? Right. So I, I don't dwell on that particular thing very much, but <laughs> I do realize recently that it has impacted my life a lot. You know, I don't want to sound like everything was horrible. Join the Cub Scouts joined the Boy Scouts. I was a good Boy Scout. I was one merit badge away from having my, from being an Eagle Scout. Wow. Uh, one, one merit badge away from being an Eagle Scout and a, and a community service project. But that happened as we moved back to, we moved to Florida and I could never get back into it again. My father loved to go fishing. We would go fishing a lot. He would teach me things. You know, he would sit me down and teach me military time, or he'd sit me down and awesome. teach teach me how to use tools, or he'd sit me down and, you know, talk about worms. And, and my dad is a, he'd make a great sitcom character because he was really weird in some ways. <laughs> so dad came home one time with a, uh, uh, with groundhog, not live groundhog, butchered prepared groundhog everybody uh we're having groundhog for dinner tonight okay groundhog <laughs> so, i'll try it never so, had it but so, i'll try it <laughs> you know, mary cook up cook us cook up this groundhog well i wasn't gonna eat groundhog i'm i'm sorry i just wasn't gonna eat any groundhog <laughs> And so, it's like a squirrel, man. I mean, well, I on. think it probably would taste kind of like a squirrel. Yeah, yeah. Depending on what it had to eat. True. Would it have changed if he'd have called it a woodchuck? <laughs> <laughs> if he had called it a really big squirrel, that might have uh, that might have done the the bit. Now, so look, I wasn't I wasn't a kid who was on a day to day basis sad. I was a kid who was scared. I was a kid who was, who spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to put his body between my mom's body and my dad's body. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out ways to distract my father so that when he started to get angry, things didn't escalate. I know I've been talking to Dave sometimes and there'll just be the tiniest little change in his expression. And, <laughs> and I'll say, Mm, Dave, you didn't like that, or Dave, that something's wrong there. And I mean, we're not talking very much at all. And, and the reason that I can do that is because I, I became hyper aware, hyper vigilant. Watch his face, and as soon as you see that tiniest little switch, then do something, mm -hmm. intervene, talk about football, say the TV's broken, you know, whatever you can do. 
No, bring, that's bringing pretty, up a distraction, so to speak. Right now, that's pretty useful these days, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, as an adult, if you're sitting in a an interview with someone and you're watching their face and you can read every little tiny expression they have, that gives you an advantage. Yes. Uh, you know, if you're if you're on a date with a girl and you can see every little tiny micro expression, that gives you an advantage. Yep. So there there was there were plenty of times when I was a a happy kid who spent a lot of time being very afraid trying to keep mom and dad from having further physical problems. Let's see. Now, the other thing that happened back, back then, this is my childhood. And I can't believe this isn't just crazy boring to people. My mother would disappear for sometimes three, four months at a time. How's that? She was an inpatient in mental hospitals. Okay. Having uh, electroconvulsive therapy. I believe she had something like 120 ECT treatments. And so with my mom, there were just big periods of her life where all the memory of that time is gone. She she doesn't remember anything about that time. Doesn't that do... It it has not that been proved that it does... More harm than good now? Well, like I was talking to, I was talking to Bert about it, and it's still done. It's done much differently from the way it was done then. Much differently. But yes, it it, it has an impact on your brain. Look, you're just not going to send electricity through somebody's brain 120 times. Exactly. And not have it have some kind of impact. But it was a situation where... You had to just think, hmm, where's mom? Right. Why, why'd she disappear? Where'd she go? I was never a, um, a great student at school. I never made straight A's all the time. I got it in my mind that I couldn't do math. Not sure why I got it in my mind that I couldn't. Because years later, when I took the SAT, I uh, scored 760 in math. Wow. And it, so I could do math. It just, just don't all, like all, it. All, no, I, I wanted to do it, but all through school, it was, a, it was a matter of confidence. Okay. It was a matter of confidence. I attempted suicide when I was 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, have I told you about that? No, but you and I are sharing a quite same story with each other. So it was a night when, I remember what it was. My my brother and I were sleeping in the same bed. And I was right at that spot where you're just about asleep. And my brother comes over and screams in my ear. And I just socked him. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, not uncommon for brothers to do that kind of thing. But it really made my dad mad. He was very intoxicated. And... I got the beating of my absolute life that night. Wow. I mean, it was, it went on for, oh man, a couple of hours, a couple of hours and hours, hours, a couple of hours. And I would, oh heck, I mean, lay, lay the wounds open. I would urinate on myself when these things were happening. Yeah. And if I, if my dad were there holding me or putting me over his lap or whatever he was doing at the time, sometimes I'd urinate on him. And that made him 
very, very angry. I, that night, didn't ever go to sleep after that. First off, I just wasn't going to be taken by surprise. Right. And so about 5.30 in the morning, I got up, went in the kitchen, and I, we had these big butcher knives. Pulled one of these big butcher knives out of the drawer. And the idea I had in my mind was that I could, I could stand against the cabinets, I could hold the butcher knife up against my sternum, and then I could just fall down. And the butcher knife would hit the floor, and it would penetrate my sternum, penetrating my heart yep. and aorta, <clears throat> and it would kill me. And that's what I did. Stood there with the butcher knife against my chest, fell down. Now, very, very luckily, I didn't really understand things like viscosity, you know, you know, you know, angle of incidence, and the fact that a little tiny point isn't going to get much purchase on a smooth floor. So all that ended up happening was the knife just kind of scraped against my chest. I had a minor cut and an abrasion rather than a stabbed heart. So I'm glad about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. Me too. I, I'm glad about that. I'm glad that so are all of us. I'm glad that I'm glad that didn't work. So at some point, dad's job takes him to Tampa, Florida. So we moved to Tampa, Florida. Around this time, the physical abuse kind of starts to fade off some. Maybe because I was getting bigger. Yeah. Maybe because dad was becoming more aware of the impact it was having on people. Can't really, can't really tell you exactly why it started to fade off at that time, but it did. Didn't stop, but it started to fade off. Dad was a geologist slash driller. He loved to spend his time out in the swamps dr drilling for soil samples. And he was probably about the best in the world at that. He was very, very good at what he did. There came a time when things were getting worse and worse. Once again, I was doing pretty well at school. I was in non-math subjects. I would really excel. In um, 12th grade, they wanted me to take, I don't know, something like consumer math or something. Right. Which was just a, ridiculous, a total waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> a total waste of time. So my solution to all this was to figure out a way to get out of there my dad had said that things would get better if i if i weren't there between him and mom he and mom so i had the idea of joining the army at age 17 meaning i needed parental permission to join the army but i got it and i joined the army a few days later i find myself in fort sill oklahoma with an awareness that I've made a very, very, very bad mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Been there, done that. In later years, I wished, I wished very much that I had been mature enough to say, okay, made a mistake, still do the best you can. Yep. But I was not that mature. Right. Was not that mature. So... This is, these are not things I'm proud of. One day I just told my drill instructor, my drill sergeant, that I wasn't going to train anymore. You know, passive resistance. I'm just sitting down here. I'm not training anymore. Uh, that does not make them happy. No, it doesn't. <laughs> when you say something like that. But they also don't want you around the other people there. Because right. you're, you're disruptive 
And look, I was a, I was a probably an absolutely nasty, horrible little bastard. I probably was. (laughs) 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 That's kind of what life had trained you to be at that point. So, oh my God. (laughs) So here's the deal. So they're trying to figure out what to do with me. And here's the other thing. When you go into the army, they give you all these tests, mm-hmm. you know, all these tests, you have intelligence tests, aptitude tests, whatever. I had like the highest grades that Fort Sill had ever seen on these tests. Yeah, the ASVAB. Yeah. And they didn't. Yeah. And, and when they see somebody with scores like that, they want to turn that guy into somebody who can do something. They don't right. want to let go of that guy. But anyway, I was not mature enough to properly do that at the time. I'm ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of being immature. I'm ashamed of the fact that I didn't have enough internal character to simply buckle down and do the work anyway. Well, I, I would not, I would not take that internally like you're doing because when you have been affected by everything that you have emotionally, that can play a very um, big place in your life. Mm-hmm. And it makes you insecure. It it makes you full of self doubt. It makes you what's the word I'm looking for? To not think of yourself to be able to do things. And so I can understand that. I really understand that. Uh because what I'm hearing is your story and mine are very, very similar. Okay. And so I understand where you're coming from. I know what it's like to have a insecurity complex. Well, and when you're 17, you don't know you have an insecurity complex. No, you don't. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, but but that's but even now, what I'm saying now is you know what happened, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And so now you can say, you know, here's the reason why I was that way. Mm-hmm. Here's the reason why I thought that way. Here's the reason why I did the things that I did. Thank God it's changed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, another thing that I left out is when I was 14, my mother, good for her, did something she had wanted to do her whole life, and she became Catholic. Okay. She, she contacted the <laughs> local Catholic church. They didn't really have the RCIA classes back then. Mm-hmm. You had to kind of work with an individual priest. We worked with a priest named Father John O'Sullivan, who was one serious intellect and priest. You know, he took everything he did very, very seriously. I went along to these classes with Father O'Sullivan, and finally I just asked, well, look, can I become Catholic too? Mm -hmm. So I did. I, you know, went through First Confession and First Communion. I had already been baptized as a child, and, you know, and then confirmation. So I thought of myself then as a very strong Catholic. Now, teenagers are fickle. Y- you can be a strong Catholic at 14 and a uh, Buddhist at 16 and an atheist at 17. <laughs> and, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the truth is, 
during none of those times do you really know what you are right when i was about 17 i would have said said to the world you know i am an atheist there is no god i don't believe in god but i never was i never really was an atheist i was someone who felt that's what i should have been saying well what what was the I'm curious, what was the defining moment to where you, I'm trying to think of a way to explain it. Um, what was the defining moment to where you experienced Christ himself? Boy, that's a big question. It is. That is a big question. I'm going to say that I it was there was never a a William James life-changing moment. Right. Okay. There was never a a road to Damascus kind right. of, you know, kind of moment. It was a much quieter thing for me. Just just kind of this internal feeling that Okay, there's something here more right than Wonderful. simply the material world. I'll tell you right. a story. I'll tell you a story since we don't seem to be having to be totally chronological. No. When I was a kid, let's say 11, 12, we would occasionally go to Good Shepherd Lutheran Church mm -hmm. in uh, in Louisville. It was a beautiful church. It was the place where they built the first Vietnam Memorial wow. in the United States. It was a place where <laughs> one of the adult sons of one of the church deacons tried to molest me. What? Tried to molest me. We're down in the basement of the church. Now, okay, this, this is not a tragedy story here. This is a, an idiot story. But... We were going to make little Torah scrolls. So we, we had a, somebody had gotten a dowel and they'd cut it up into pieces. And we had this nice long, you know, yellowish, brownish kind of paper. And, you know, we're just glue all these things together. And then kids could write Bible verses on them. That was going to be a, a big Sunday school project. Right. This guy's name was... I've redacted his name. And he says, hey, Victor, come up here. I want to show you something. And it was a standard kind of grooming thing. Oh, no, you need to come a little closer. You need to come a little closer. And next thing I know, his hand is down my pants, squeezing my bottom. And, and I'm... Uh, now, I for some reason, I was not a kid who said, well, he's an adult. I got to do what he says. Something in my brain said, hell no, I'm out of here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I backed up right away and ran up the stairs, got out of there, immediately went to tell my mother, hey, mom, here's what happened. My mother, much to her credit, immediately went to Pastor Durer, told him what happened. Durer, that's a, how, how's that a, for a name for a, a, a Lutheran minister? Uh, and and, and uh, he took care of the problem. That guy disappeared. Right. That guy disappeared, and his, his whole family disappeared. He, that was, well, he should have. There, there, that problem did not happen again. Right. But let me tell you a, uh, an emotion 
Okay. I would sing in the choir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure it was nothing special. It was just a choir, you know, but I was singing, doing the best I could. And I can remember this feeling of just astounding joy while I was singing in that choir. Worship 101. Yep. Worship. I mean, it was just this, this yep. it was this physical feeling in my face. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm starting here and kind of going down my nose and down my cheeks. And then there was feeling, you know, there would be this warmth and swelling in my chest. I believe that was kind of an awareness of something holy. Mm-hmm. And then in the Lutheran church back then, I, I, as the service came to an end, they would say the Kohenic blessing. Mm-hmm. And Father, not Father Durer, Pastor Durer would say it in English, and then he would say it in German. And I can remember every time I heard the Kohenic blessing, just crying, you know, crying. Just there's, and once again, it wasn't a cry. It wasn't crying because of sadness. It was crying just because of this overwhelming feeling of joy. So I'm going to say that's kind of the first time that I, I think I felt something with the presence of Christ. Very good. Uh, I don't think I don't think I ever labeled it as such. But how do you as a kid? I I don't I don't know. Well, each each one of us, as we come into adulthood, each one of us can hopefully remember a defining moment that led us to Christ. We don't think about it back when we were teenagers, but as adults, we can. We can look back and say, you know, this was the time, this was the place, this was the hour that I knew that I needed help. And the only help that I could get is from Christ himself. And and that's what you just shared. And it's it it is so amazing. Like I said, we all have a story, and mine is very similar to yours. That defining moment is what literally and physically saves our life. Very, yes, I know I, firsthand what it is to try suicide. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have never spoken about it. At about the age of 15 myself, I was... I was in a really bad place, and uh, I actually took my single-barrel 12-gauge, pulled the hammer back, clicked it, nothing happened. Where pulled the you... hammer back, pointed it away from me, and it went off. Wow. That was God. I and can't, that, can't that come up with any what, better definition than that. That is what changed me that was that was my defining moment that is a good defining moment i mean a lot of times i'll hear you say things like not today not now not on my watch right okay that's a father bird songism uh (laughs) but i'm just glad that you remember that and i'm glad you can say it that (laughs) needs to be said many times yeah the well I, i listen to people very carefully that's what god said that day i think right you know, not right. today, not now. I didn't feel that type of joy for years and years after that. Mm-hmm. 
what I felt in the Catholic Church was more a, well, an acceptance. It, it was something where you can't, you, you can't ever learn everything there is to learn. Right. In the Catholic Church. They are willing to sit down and talk to you and try to teach you these things. And it made my mom so happy. And I did feel happiness when I was there. I would be a, uh, a lector. Wonderful. You know, every chance I got, I was the lector. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was probably the only 14-year-old lector there. But I really enjoyed that. So for a number of years, I was what I consider to be a, a pretty strong Catholic. Uh, at some point, my dad, once again, relocated to Houston. Houston was kind of where I decided I was going to plant roots. Dad could go somewhere else. Mom could go somewhere else, wherever they wanted to go. I was going to stay in Houston. Right. So I had, I, I can't, I don't know what the financial issues with my family always were, but I was a manager at a national shirt shops shop. Do you remember the national shirt shops? I do not. But you, Dave. No, no, I don't remember. There used to be this store, this men's clothing store called National Shirt Shop. And it was kind of like uh, the uh, Dollar General version of uh, Men's Warehouse. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, we had everything that Men's Warehouse had, just not, this, not quite as fancy as Men's Warehouse. But anyway... I worked there, became the assistant manager, became the manager, uh, had not gone to college at all, but I was saving money up to go to college. I was going to go to St. Thomas Aquinas University in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was going to uh, study to become a radiologic technician. Then it's time for my dad to go to Houston, but he needed some money for us to get to Houston. So I gave him the money that I had saved up to go to St. Thomas Aquinas. We go to Houston. I start working there. At some point, I decide I'm going to go to nursing school with the idea that nursing was a way to get a job. Yeah. You know, almost all the time. How am I doing here? Am I boring? No, you are. No, no, no. You are spot on. This is this. This is what I wanted. Okay, you got it. This one of the sad things about look. I was a good nurse. I liked nursing. I enjoyed nursing. I always gravitated to the places that were fun. ER, ICU, surgery. You know, those were fun. You know, your real skills needed to work in there. There were, I don't know, probably 11 or 12 males in that class. I'm the only one still alive. Wow. And the reason for that is I was the only heterosexual male in that class. And this was, you know, just when AIDS was starting to really, really, really get going. Back in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, back in the 80s. And they, they didn't even know what they were dealing with. Mm-hmm. They did not know what, what the organism was. There were doctors and nurses back then who refused to take care of AIDS patients. Wow. They just. No, I'm not going in that room. I'm not going to take care of that patient. I never did that. I, I, I never, I just figured I was safe with standard precautions. And of course I was, 
I devoted myself to to nursing for a long time. I was, like I say, very, very good at it. That was where I decided I didn't want to do nursing forever at all. And so at some point I was going to need to go back to school. There are things about my life that I don't talk about very, very often at all, if ever, even with you guys. <laughs> That's understandable. You know, there are things I don't talk about very often at all. But as a nurse, I met my first wife, who was my first wife. And Dave probably doesn't even know that I have gone through a divorce and an annulment. I'm, well, I'm aware. Let I me, remember. Let you remember? Me, let but me I don't interrupt. know the details and don't yeah. need to know. Let me interrupt real quick, Vic. Don't, don't hide right now because you're in a safe place. Agreed. No hiding. My first wife was astoundingly brilliant. She had gone to an elite university, had degrees in chemistry and psychology from that university. Mm-hmm. She wanted to go to medical school. She probably could have gone to medical school, but she gave up. She got rejected from enough places where she just didn't want to go there anymore. So she became a nurse right. uh, in New York. We met at a major cardiothoracic hospital in Houston. We, you know, had a ongoing romance for a, a number of years and then chose to get married. Right. I... I deeply, deeply loved her. Right. It, in some ways, I still kind of do, well, but of not as not as a husband, as yeah. a person who experienced a lot of life with her. Of course, you do. Yeah. We both wanted kids. I, one of the problems in the marriage was, I had asked, "How are we going to raise these kids? Are we going to raise them Catholic, Christian?" She had grown up. How do you, what do you call somebody who's, they go to church three times a year. They think of themselves as being Christian. They uh, are not in any way bad people. Mm -hmm. They just have this very, very low level of religiosity about them. Josh, Josh, Josh just said, uh, Seasonal Christian. Seasonal Christians, yeah. <laughs> that boy's got wisdom, doesn't that he? boy does have wisdom. <laughs> they, uh, and she said, well, look, you know, you're the one who cares about all this stuff. When we have kids, you decide what you want to do, and I'll, I'll support you in that. Okay. Okay. All right, so here's where things started to get complicated. Mm. I picked up a book at Half Price Bookstore one day called Love Song. Houston had these great bookstores, Half Price Bookstores, and things were normally less than Half Price. It just had this great cover on it. It said, Love Song, Becoming a Jew by Julius Lester. I said, huh, that looks interesting. Let me pick this up and read it. I read the book, was absolutely knocked over by it. Read it again, was absolutely knocked over by it, decided I wanted to become a Jew. I can remember at that time that I really was having difficulty internally feeling and accepting the divinity of Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, that, that really was the hang up. 
it wasn't that I minded the idea of living as a Christian or even as a Catholic, but the divinity of Christ was at that point not something that my brain and my heart would embrace. Right. And I know I can't be the only person who's ever gone through that particular struggle. No, you're not. <laughs> and, and so I started studying. And when I study, I study. And I would go down and I would buy every single book I could find about Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, had, I had hundreds of books about Judaism. Now, it's not easy to become a Jew. No. It, it, it's, it's, it's something that's pretty much actively discouraged. They, they don't want you to become a Jew. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, you know the, view, the view is, first off, I think, you want to be one of us? Why? You know, we get put in ovens and things like that. Why do you want to be one of us? Or they'll say, you know, look, we, we've already got a lot of really bad Jews. <laughs> we, you, know, you know, we don't need any more bad Jews. <laughs> That's funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> It is funny. Well, that's, uh, this was the attitude. Of bad juju, huh? <laughs> Josh said bad juju. <laughs> okay, all right. We got married in the upstairs chapel at the University of Houston. Where I was now going to become an architect, studying architecture. And I, was, I had decided I was going to do healthcare architecture. Which kind of made sense. When did she get pregnant? Two or three months after we got married, she got pregnant. Mm-hmm. And, and had a miscarriage. Ah, okay. Had a, had a miscarriage at about two months. All right, I'm, I'm, just, I'm going to go down deep into the, uh, the emotionally painful stuff. Our entire relationship had been rocky. What she intimated to me later was that she was so convinced... That no one could love her. That it was her daily task to prove that I didn't. Wow. So she would treat me very, very, very poorly. Cruelly. You know, seeing if I would stick around. I can remember she was working down at the Houston Medical Center, where she was teaching a course on transplantation. I'm at home in Katy. Katy is to Houston as... Coming is to Atlanta. Uh huh. Okay. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's a it's a suburb, but it's a pretty decent way out there. And she calls me and she says, "I'm bleeding." And I said, "Well, why are you talking to me? You know, go to the hospital right now. Go to the hospital." And I'll never forget what she said. She said, "What if our insurance won't pay for it?" I said, "I don't give a." I probably said something pretty obscene, you know. But you know, go to the hospital. You know, whatever's necessary, we'll pay for it. Right. So I haul butt down to St. Luke's Hospital, which was a St. Luke's Episcopal Hospital, which is a really nice hospital there in uh, in Houston. Ah, and so they're doing everything they can do to try and figure out fetal heart tones and, you know, just whatever they can do to try and figure out what's going on with her. Well, it turns out there was no fetus. It had been what was called a blighted ovum. And so it makes your body think it's pregnant. Your body thinks it's pregnant. Okay. There is some material that exists there in the womb. 
but it's not genetically complete material that could become a, a baby. Once we figured out what was going on, I remember, well, first off, trying very hard to say, look, I'm not giving up. You know, I know these, I know things don't look good right now, but I'm not giving up. Because by the time your wife's been pregnant for two or three months, you've already built that person in your mind. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you've already mm -hmm. built that person in your mind. 100%. Yeah. And so they finally got her into a bed. They gave her, they didn't do a DNC. They just were going to give her some medications that were going to cause like a really heavy period. And I can remember sitting there in that chair by the bed all night long, holding her hand, doing anything she needed, getting her water. And I remember in the morning, she said, wow, you really do love me, don't you? Yeah. Uh, I said, you bet I do. Uh, yeah. That didn't last a long time, but at least she saw it at that time. That's what I was going to say. At least she experienced that moment. Yes, she did. Yeah. She deeply wanted to have a baby. She really wanted to have a baby. <laughs> and I can remember the doctor there at uh, St. Luke's. His name was... Name redacted. He was awesome. And he, um, he said, look, you're not going to be able to get pregnant for probably six months. Take your time. You'll get pregnant. And she's like, I want to be pregnant fast. Well, she got pregnant about six weeks later. And I remember, you know, being a nurse, I drew some blood and got some urine and took it to work with me. And went over to the lab and say, hey, tell me if my wife is pregnant or not. <laughs> and they said she was. That pregnancy was our first son. His name derives from his grandfather, but will go unstated mm -hmm. here. They thought that this child was going to be in real distress. Mm -hmm. Because his mother had been in labor for such a very long time. She's one of these women who could never, ever give birth vaginally. She would just die. And so would the baby. Right. And that, that, that's one of the reasons that babies died and, and women died, mm -hmm. you know, back when. So she had been, she had been in labor for 28 hours. And finally the, the doctor says, you know, I think it's probably a, I think it's probably a um, good time to do a C-section. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. Let's do a C-section. So I wake her up. And tell her that they are ready to finally do a C-section. And she was angry that we hadn't woken her up and included her, included her in the conversation. And she was right. We, we didn't handle that well. We should have woken her up and told her. But anyways, we, we, we do a C-section. Baby is just perfect. Big, healthy, meconium-covered baby. And I can remember they had the neonatologist in the room. Pulls him up and says, yeah, it looks pretty good to me. And he pees right on her forehead right then. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're gonna hold a baby like this you get what i mean you should know what you're gonna get <laughs> you get what you asked for you get yeah. what you asked for and and so she immediately laughs and says oh well we know he doesn't have hypospadias and <laughs> so anyway he he was healthy i rem i remember that somebody had given us this really expensive little girl's dress you know, it had little butterflies and flowers and pink frills and all this kind of stuff on, on it. And we had a boy. It wasn't anything, you know, we weren't going to be using this. So there were, the lady next door had had, a, had had a girl. They were obviously very, very poor. 
had come from some other country. So we gave them that dress. And, and I remember the woman had an older son who was like three or something. And I think he was three because I'm out there looking at Christopher and he's, he's standing next to me and I say, how old are you? Three bunnies. Mm. Oh, three bunnies. And so that's always become part of our family. I'm three bunnies old. <laughs> anyway, we bring our newborn healthy son home. Everything is basically okay as far as health goes, but this path of anger. I married my dad. That's a That makes sense. This this is a That makes I mean, a lot of sense. Yeah. That's the kind of thing women normally say. But I married my dad. Right. Mm-hmm. Two years later, we have another baby. His name also will be withheld. Unfortunately, he was not as healthy as our older son. When he got home, he had eye infections, ear infections from the first day he was alive. Got up the next morning and he had this monster green bleb in his eye. Take him to the doctor. And every morning I had to get up and I had to squeeze all this goop out of his eye. He hated it. I hated it. But we decided that I would do it in a different room so that he could always associate his mother with the food. Right. And not, and not having his eye squished. So I think that was a, that was a good decision. Anyway, the day he was supposed to have surgery, get up in the morning, start squeezing the eye out. All this goop comes out of his nose, which means the appropriate tube had finally opened up. Mm -hmm. So he didn't have to have that particular surgery. He had to have lots of other surgeries. The time when I became aware that I was in a marriage that I would, I would be lucky if it lasted was when the younger son was two and the older son was about four. Our younger son at that point had two surgeries for tubes in his ears. He had had, uh, he finally did have to have probings of his eyes. They did a procedure to widen a portion of his throat where he kept getting infections. So we go in the wintertime to visit our parents. My parents lived in Tampa. Her parents lived in Oneco, Florida, which was a little suburb of Sarasota. Her parents were quite heavy smokers. Her father had multiple sclerosis and was confined to a wheelchair. I was happy for us to be there during the day, but... I wanted to take our younger son to a hotel at night. So he can sleep in a room with clean air. Right. You know, because he's going to get sick. This turned into the most horrible thing that I can remember, where my spouse at the time, I don't like talking about things like this, but she just acted like I was evil, horrible. Right. I remember saying, what about my younger son? I'm not going to say it. She said something very cruel at the time. The statement has been redacted. I can... You know, so at this point, I have no idea what to do. You know, I don't know how to bring our marriage back into some safe zone. Okay? Not after that statement. You know, where, where I can count on my wife to help me build a family. Right. You know, I, I, I don't know how I can do that. But I tried, and I kept trying, and I kept trying, and I kept trying, and I kept trying, and I kept trying. And, kept trying. and there were times when I made things better. We moved a number of years later. To another large southern city. Had a really good job offer there. And bought a house. Um, And the marriage would be sometimes strong, 
sometimes weak. When, before we left Houston, uh, my father woke up in congestive heart failure one morning. He lived out north of Houston. And I uh, went out there. They took him to the hospital. By the time I got there, he had had Lasix and Digitalis and was feeling a lot better. You know, he was peeing out massive amounts of fluid that his body wasn't able to get rid of. And the next day, they decided they were going to do a, uh, a cath to see what was going on with him. They had very badly damaged heart. And they brought him out to talk to me. And said, he said, what should I do? Should I have this cath or not? Because they were going to want to put a stent in. Right. Or several stents. And I asked him, well, what do you want? He said, well, I want to be able to live and watch my grandchildren grow up. Okay, this is your best chance to be able to do that. You know, you're going to continue to get sicker and sicker and sicker. They can give you medications, but at some point, the medications aren't going to take care of what's going on with your heart. Mm-hmm. All right. There's another thing I don't talk about very much. As I am telling him this, which is the right answer, I mean, I'm giving him the proper counsel. Right. I knew he was going to die. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't fear that he was going to die. I didn't think it was possible that he was going to die. I knew he was going to die. It, it, was, it, was, it was just like if God ever spoke to me, it, right. was, it was, he's not coming out of there alive. And I was, I was, I was right. Anyway, so... I, I, like I've told Dave, I never cried. Never cried. It, it was like I had already mourned for mm-hmm. my dad. Mm-hmm. I had already mourned. Uh, somebody needed to take over all the stuff that was going on. Yeah. So that was me. Yeah, there are things you prepare exactly. yourself for. Yes, there are. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. emotionally well, ahead of time. But I don't remember doing that. I don't remember consciously ever thinking that. But I assume that your mind just does these things. Just a little bit at a time. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. All right, we get to the new southern city. We both have jobs. My older son is my laser beam child. He gets his eye on a goal. Zoom. His entire being is dedicated to achieving that goal. And he's really good at it. My younger son is my fractal walk child in that he might have a goal out there, but he has no idea how he's going to get to the goal, and he's always... You know, back and forth and bouncing and changing his mind and all this kind of stuff. At some point, my spouse and I decided that we just really can't do this. You know, she, uh, she said to me, look, I haven't loved you in a long time. And I said, why didn't you tell what? me? Well, she said that she hadn't loved me in a long time. Wow. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me that? Oh, well, you know, I just thought we could, we could make it work. We could just, you know, have a family and... You know, it's, it's not like you're the worst guy in the world. So we got divorced. I remember telling my, you know, essentially grown children that we were getting divorced. Uh, they were both surprised, but they weren't really terribly upset about it. And I don't even think they were terribly surprised by it. I think the, the children rarely are. Yeah, probably so. Think, you think about how hyper aware you were oh, when yeah. you were growing up. I mean... Different reasons, but children are hyper aware of their situation with their parents. Oh, you're right. You're right. So the the divorce was very amicable. There was no fighting. There was no financial fighting at all. 
I arranged things such that she got the majority of the property in the marriage, uh, just because that's how I wanted to do things. I, I didn't want to fight about it. Then I start trying to build a different life. <clears throat> and a few years later, I decide, you know, I really might want to be with somebody again and, you know, be married again. And in the Catholic Church, that's not really kind of really the way they do things. But I started talking to several priests and we had conversations about the kind of discussions that my previous spouse and I had had early in our marriage. And through the various forms that you fill out, which I found extremely painful to fill out, I, I, I really did. They decided that the fact that my previous spouse had never intended to raise these children as Catholic was somewhat of a disqualifying factor. So they granted an annulment. I still don't like that idea. I mean, I really don't, because whether or not there was the desire to raise those children as Catholic, I entered that marriage with everything I had. You know, I mean, there was there was no reservation here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the raising of children is very important in the, the Roman Catholic Church. If they, I, I don't know how this works all that well, you're not being Catholic myself, but if she's is not intent on raising the children Catholic, that also means that she does not feel Catholic herself. Not at all. She considered herself to be an atheist. And so that combination, I'm sure, plays into well, it a great deal, right? Absolutely. I mean, I can remember when I was, you know, coming back to the Catholic Church, and I would go and I would talk to priests. I ended up talking to, um, not the bishop, but, but one of the priests who assisted the bishop, there in Charlotte, because he was spending some time at the church where I was. And he, um, I tell him the, the story, and he says, you know, you're not really married. And I said, what? He said, yeah, as far as the church is concerned, you're not married. Right. You know, you're living in sin. And I said, well, I certainly feel married. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. And the Catholic Church, look, you can put five canon lawyers in the same room. And you're going <laughs> to, and you're going to get twenty-two different answers about any theological question. Why in the world would you put five canon lawyers in the same room? <laughs> that just sounds like a disaster to me. Exactly. <laughs> but you're right. You're right. It is very. It seems like it's very localized, decision-wise. It, it's and I don't understand this. I mean, because to me, it seems like a canon lawyer. Look, it, for you to call yourself a canon lawyer. Man, you've spent some time in school. I mean, a lot of these guys are real lawyers, too. Right. You know, I mean, he's, they're real secular lawyers. And then they become canon lawyers, which means that they've gone to Rome and someone has said, you are somebody who really understands the theology of the church and the catechism. We'll look to you when somebody needs to make a difficult decision. But anyway, I can remember him telling me, you know, you're not married. So the whole thing to me was a very painful thing. Well, he was actually correct in what he said, but the rest of what he said was garbage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, because you you were not really married at that point in time because she had forsaken the marital vows that y'all took when you first got married. You mean to love and honor and that kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and when that is when that is neglected, that is that is a way of breaking the covenant 
of holy matrimony. Well, I felt it like sounds it, to me that y'all were just well, we felt it. It, it had living felt, together. It yeah. had it had felt like being a roommate for many years. Exactly. Okay, had essentially been a celibate marriage for eight years, something like that. That's a long time for there to be celibacy between a, a man and his wife. Well, <clears throat> then I met my current spouse, who also is not Catholic. She is LDS, from an extremely serious LDS family. Her father has been a bishop in the church. Other members of her family have served as bishops. They had eight children, seven of whom have had two to six children themselves. One of the children is brain-damaged and deaf from rubella. So she doesn't have any children. But when you get the entire family together, it's something around 50 people. She loves me. And I mean really, really, really loves me. And she'll say things to me. You know, I'll, I'll ask her, you know, is your life better now than it was before I got here? Oh, my God, my life's a lot better than it was. And she wants to build a life with me. There's mm -hmm. not any kind of... There's, there's, there's never this, this garbage where you feel uncomfortable all the time. I mean, I, I, can, I can remember my first wife saying to me, I couldn't respect you because you were too kind. Wow. And you'd have to know the family. I couldn't respect you because you were too kind. Where do you go with that? What, 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 you, know, what, you know, where do I go to take my asshole lessons? I know. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not internally an ass. I, right. I, I don't enjoy being unkind to people. I, I don't enjoy, you know, that's not who I am. So now I find myself in a truly loving marriage and interacting frequently with this huge Mormon family. I know you're not supposed to call them Mormons anymore, but I'm going to because that's what they call themselves. They seem to like, perhaps love, and respect me. And that is an incredibly good feeling. I got a letter from her father one time that said, you can't imagine how much you are the answer to many of our prayers meaning that he was very happy that I was someone who would be loving and supportive of his daughter under all circumstances. Now, where do I stand today, spiritually? I am a Catholic. I am a, I am a strong believer in... Uh, have you ever read Flannery O'Connor? Southern, Southern author, Catholic. Anyway, she wrote she wrote a she wrote several really great southern stories. She's very famous for those. But she also writes about Catholic stuff. And she says, "Look, if you're going to church for anything other than transubstantiation, right. why are you why are you going?" Exactly. <laughs> why, you know, what's the purpose of you going there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and so I feel sometimes just like a one-trick pony, because there are other things about the Catholic Church that I still really love and enjoy, but transubstantiation is 
deeply important to me. Exactly. The real presence of Christ. The real yeah. presence of Christ. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I, I've, you know, I've been involved, I've gone to Protestant churches and I'll ask people, I say, you know, what do you, what do you think's happening when, when people take communion? Oh, it's just a memorial to them. Well, yeah, that's what they're saying. It's, well, it's just a, it's a symbolic representation of the Last Supper. And I'm exactly, no, it's, it's the, what's the purpose? Yeah. (laughs) What's what's the purpose of that? I agree. And there have been, I, I don't get into arguments with people about stuff like this. I just don't want to do it. But that's why I stay Catholic. Now, I find myself very concerned about the direction that the Catholic Church seems to be taking. I don't, I don't know that what I have come to think of as the church will, will survive in, in temporal form. I mean, Christ promises that the church is forever and that he will, you know, protect the church always. But I don't live on the plane of Christ. I live on the plane of the earth. And the Catholic Church is changing in ways that I find really painful. I agree. You know, I find very painful. But I also find myself saying, well, look, yeah, all this other stuff's kind of falling apart or really being attacked. But the reason you're here is because of the Eucharist. And no no number of bizarre statements from Rome can change that. Although I've wondered what would happen if... If at some point, you know, there's a communication from Rome saying, you know, we're sort of abandoning this real presence idea. We're abandoning this whole idea of transubstantiation. It, I don't think that's going to happen, but I can't put it totally out of my mind that it could happen. Well, that would be when you join me in the season. That'd be where I would join you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, We're not playing that game. <laughs> I have an eidetic memory, which is a good thing and a bad thing. And it's not a perfect eidetic memory. I'm not like Tesla. But for visual things, I can remember things with such incredible clarity that it's conversations that people have with me. So I'll have had a conversation 10 years ago with somebody, and they will have told me stuff. And then I'll see them again later, and I'll say, hey, you remember when you took that boat trip you know, down to Panama? How'd you know about that? You told me about it. When? <laughs> because they don't remember the conversation, but I do. Right. Now, here's the spiritual challenge that I have. When you can remember everything that you've done wrong, every time you have hurt someone, every time you have caused unnecessary pain and tears, every time that you fail to be the man that you're supposed to be, when you can remember every event like that with perfect clarity, it never goes away. It never feels like it happened a long time ago. That's what the sacrament of confession. That's is what for. the sacrament of confession is for. And I, and I and I don't find myself feeling like I'm morally compromised by any of this. I just know that my mind is always going to dredge these things up. And when it does, it's going to be just like I was there in the room. It's going to be just like I said, the cruel thing that I said, and I'm going to feel the exact emotions that I felt then, mm-hmm. and they're not going to be distant. You know, what's, what does the Bible say? Uh, through a mirror darkly? Right. 
Okay. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Through a mirror darkly. Mm-hmm. Okay, where yeah, you can see what's going on, but it's all hazy and it's we not see cl- through a mirror darkly right now, but then there'll come a time where we see clearly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I see clearly all the time. And that like I say, has both its very, very good points and that I can remember all of these wonderful things that have happened. I can remember anything that I read. I can remember all this stuff. Uh, Dave's talking about, you know, the knowledge just bouncing around in my head. Well, that's because if I read something, it's just there. Right. You know, it's not going away. And so uh, that's what I strive. That's what I fight with these days. You know, I fight with wanting to live a life where past regrets don't pop up so often. Right. And I've, believe me, everything that I think about, I've confessed. And I don't go back and confess the same thing over and over and over again. <laughs> you know, I just don't. I don't, don't go back and confess the same thing over and over and over again. And, uh, my mother did that. My My mother... I mean, she, at the end of her life, she was beset with, I mean, the Catholic Church calls it scrupulosity, you know, where she's just feeling that everything she does is a sin and that she needs to confess the same thing over and over again. I can, I I had to call, you know, her priest one time and and just say, you know, how can I help her with this? I don't think I could, but I have a wonderful wife. I have a, a career that I enjoy at least most of the time i i can pretty much call my own hours i can pretty much do what i want to do i have two astoundingly wonderful sons uh one of one who has two sons himself uh his life is not easy one of his sons is autistic my younger son is uh, bipolar i actually knew my younger son was bipolar before he knew he was bipolar because because I can remember him calling me one day just over the moon about something, something pretty mundane, you know, just how happy he was about this. And we talked for eight hours on the phone that day. Wow. <laughs> and that was just because he needed to dump everything out right then. That was the manic phase. And then he has pretty low lows. He's well controlled now. Honestly, the most fulfilling part of my life right now aside from my current spouse is this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. is this uh, if i don't get to talk to somebody in this group on a pretty frequent basis i feel sad you see that's the reason why i wanted to do this and that's the reason why also that remember uh well, when I fell and hurt my back, I do. Uh, I uh, I reached out and said, "Hey, can we talk tonight?" Yeah, yeah. And 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 so that's. I mean, you know, Josh and I really enjoy that, and it brings joy to our lives. And you have to understand, Vic, that from the beginning of time, God created us for one purpose. And that is relationship. Not only with him, but with one another. Mm-hmm. And and that is very, very important to us that we 
hold that sacred in our lives. And that's why I brag on you guys all the time because, I mean, ever since I've been introduced to the three of you, um, I love it. I love our time together. I do too. And, uh, but, but I want to ask Dave now, uh, does he have any questions for you? So first off, I didn't disappoint you there. No, absolutely not. You have not disappointed me in one bit. You shared your story. That's what I wanted to share. And I just got to be honest with you right now. Uh, I was wanting this to go on my podcast, but I think it needs to go on yours. I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you I, I, think about it and then, and then whichever direction you want to go, we'll do it. I don't feel but, as comfortable sharing my story with the entire world that I know as I do okay. with you guys. Um, okay. but I will think about it. Yeah. All right, Mr. Interlocutor. Uh, David, do you got anything? I, you know, as seems to be the, the case these days, Vic has just poured his heart out. Exactly. And you, you hear it more in his, in his episodes on Trailer Trash Tears, too. Yeah. I love um, it. Yeah. I don't, know, I don't know why that's been happening so much. Maybe it's just... Um, well, I think there's maybe something my, maybe, inside that you need to. Let I think that it's out. my mind's way of trying to get rid of the negative eidetic memories. You know what, Vic? Yeah, that makes every, sense. Vic, every Lord's Day, every Sunday, this is what I tell the church after Holy Eucharist when we're when we're ending. I tell them, open up your heart and receive your Father's blessings. And this is what I say. As you go from this place, always remember the gospel of the kingdom. That God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the word unto himself, not counting people's sins against them. And then I say, God loves you. He's not mad at you. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. And may the blessings of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. But the main part of that, I want to back up just a little bit. God's not mad at you. He loves you. He hadn't forgot about you. He's not going to leave you. He just wants you to be with him. And this whole story here you see that's the why i wanted to do this because it opens up your heart and allows people to really know you but it also does something to you because when you open up your heart like that you tend to realize what's really going on in your life at that point in time but it also it also opens a door for you to be healed from that. You know, we we talked about the sacrament of confession just to, very briefly just a, just a moment ago. There's one thing to confess, but there's another thing to be healed. And the sacrament of confession is also a type of 
holy unction, if you want to put it that way, because it allows you to be healed from those thoughts. It allows you to be healed from those emotions. And the only thing that you need to do right now, son, is just, well, I just called you son. You can call me son I, all you wish. You're fine. I'm, in, I'm in priest mode right now. Yeah, you can be in, be in priest uh, mode. That's fine. Doesn't bother uh, me a bit. The, the, <laughs> the, the, the only thing that you need to do right now is truly allow, allow. I'm going to stop there for a moment and let you think on that. Allow God to heal you emotionally. I'm sure. I mean, I would, I would love to, um, to not carry around these burdens. I really would. And that's, and that's the reason why we, and another thing, that's why I wanted to talk tonight. And I, that's why I asked to speak with you, Dave and JJ. You've already talked to JJ, right? Not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but these type of conversations, it not only helps us, you with me? Mm -hmm. But it helps our listeners to understand we're human. Well, and, and also and, to understand and, that things that have happened to them exactly. or that they've experienced are not unique to them. And see, this is, this is a situation that nobody else that I've ever heard really shares who they are. And I think that's very important to, there's no, somebody may listen to this podcast that we're doing now and say, you know what? I am worth living for. Now think about that for a moment. So you just, you just, you just poured out your heart To everyone, somebody's going to hear this and they're going to say, you know what? I do deserve to live another day. And that is so powerful, Vic. The story that you just told could save someone's immortal soul. Because in the natural world, the stuff that you have gone through you could understand why someone would take their own life. I, like I say, I tried. I, yep. I, uh, and, you know, since then I've, that thought has been in my mind, but there's never been a plan. There's never been right. any kind of, it, it's a, I'm going to say this and I don't, I mean this for myself. I don't mean it for anyone else. It's an escape valve. It's the thought that if things ever got so horrible to the point where I just couldn't deal with them at all, mm -hmm. there is that escape valve. I don't think I could ever do that again. No, when I couldn't I, either. When I was 12 years old, yeah. uh, you know, looking at that floor coming up toward me and trying to hold that knife is a really weird way to try to commit suicide, too. You know, tr try, trying to hold that knife as steady and as still as i could but it missed it and that missed. was god and i don't believe that i ever i know that at that time i didn't hadn't changed my mind mm -hmm. it, it was just a matter of oh that didn't work and um and the thing is everyone else in the house was asleep 
Yeah. So they never knew. David? Yes. <laughs> yes, Father Mike. Questions. I I don't have any questions for Vic. Okay. Uh, you know, I have I've heard Statements. some of this before. Okay. Um you know, we we've had a lot of conversations. You know, I think one of the things that you know, sometimes you don't give enough credit is for and I don't even think he thinks of it like this, but is for for JJ for bringing us all together. Yeah, oh, you know, well, I let this, him know <laughs> this discord that he set up um, really fostered a lot of relationships, and uh, and I'm privileged to be a part of it. Uh, you know, we we spent a lot of time talking. Yeah, all of us, and so I. Between the episodes he's done and and conversations that we've had privately, you know, I, a lot of this I'm I'm aware of, not all, but what always strikes me about about Vic is, you know, the man's all heart. Yeah, absolutely. He cares. Yeah, it's a genuine care, uh, and. <laughs> And he's humble to boot. Um, you know, he's got this this super intelligence and memory, but he never brags about it. Right. He's never throwing it in your face. Right. And uh and and goes out of his way to downplay it. Yeah. But uh <laughs> You know, I think that's why Boudreaux exists. Right. But. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Boudreaux says some funny stuff occasionally. Yes, he yeah, does. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I feel honored to, to have Vic as a friend. and Absolutely. And I think, I think that given the life that he has had, <clears throat> um, he's done pretty good with it. And I think he's doing great stuff with it now. I mean, I'm sure he doesn't see it that way with the Trailer Trash Terrors podcast or the Rundown, you know, any of the podcasts he's involved with. But but he's touching people. He's helping Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Well, there's going to come a time when, I think, uh, the Rundown especially, uh, there are going to be a lot of people wanting to hear a Rundown. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, every couple of weeks, there's gonna be there's gonna be a lot of people wanting to hear that. I agree. Uh, Trailer Trash Terrors. I've had a lot more views than I thought I would get. Listen, I want to thank both of you for listening, and I, you know, when when you can pour your heart out and not feel judged, right? That's a that's a rare thing. That's a rare thing.